This is Focus on God's Word with Graham Weir. Hello everyone, I'm Graham Weir. Welcome to part five of the Reformation Revisited. This is the six-part series dealing with the implications of the great Protestant Reformation for Christianity today. And in the program today, we're going to take a look at the battle plan, an insider's view, an incredible insider's view of the battle plans of the Antichrist to destroy God's faithful remnant just before the close of probation. And we're also going to reveal the secret weapons that God has made available to enable his people to build an impregnable fortress of spiritual safety in the time of crisis. This is an important message. Before we do that, let's begin with prayer. Loving Father in heaven, we praise thee and thank thee that we can come together and consider the great heritage that you've given us in the Protestant Reformation. We hear voices saying that the Protestant Reformation is over, has been over for 15 years. But Lord, we don't believe that. We believe the Protestant Reformation is even just now beginning and coming soon coming to its close. Lord, we want to pray that you will bless us this morning. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, especially our heart inclined to do your will as we get an insider's view, an incredible insider's view of the battle plans of the Antichrist. Thank you, Lord, for showing us these things that we might be forewarned and forearmed because we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text today for this episode is 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 15, and it says this, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or the epistles of God's disciples. Well, ever since the extension of Christ, his true followers have had to stand fast in the face of terrible persecution. And here we see the Apostle Peter, who thought it too great an honour to be crucified like his Lord and requested his executioners to crucify him upside down. It has always been a conflict between tradition and God's truth. Well, during the early years of Roman persecution, Watching Christians being put to death was the weekly entertainment, the sport of the loss. I can't imagine that, can you? But that's what happened. And much of it happened in a Colosseum in Rome. Some of them had to stand fast in mountain strongholds. And some, like Martin Luther, had to stand fast in the front of the rich and the powerful. And more than 100 million more than four times the population of Australia stood fast at the cost of their lives. Their crime was that they dared to possess a copy of the Bible, a privilege that we take for granted today. You know, we must never forget the price that they paid for our religious freedom. What do you say? Amen. And we must guard this privilege diligently because there are forces out there who want to take that privilege off us. Do you realize that? 
Some of them escape European persecution to forge a new beginning in a new land, a land of religious liberty, of separation of church and state. And as I said in a previous episode, we can thank the good old Baptists for that one. They were staunch supporters of the separation of church and state. The Protestant, the Protestant refugees from Europe eventually wrote a constitution that ensured their new American states would never make religious laws. That's a very important determination, isn't it? Never make religious laws, because they'd learned from the persecution in Europe that you cannot do that. If you do that, it just results in great persecution. And in this new environment, people could study and proclaim the Bible without fear of persecution. And in this new land, God raised up another prophet who would proclaim his last warning messages to the world and prepare his people for his soon return. And one of the identifying signs of the remnant church, which according to prophecy, would exist after the 1260-day period or after 1798, is the testimony of Jesus. And we understand that, that statement to mean the spirit of prophecy or the prophetic gift. Do you agree with that? The Seventh-day Adventist Church from its very beginning has believed that in fulfilment of Revelation 12 verse 17, the spirit of prophecy was manifested in the life and work of Ellen G. White, a very humble woman who didn't ask to be called, but God called her. And we'll talk more about that shortly. Our church in their book, 28 Fundamental Beliefs, made this statement about Ellen White. It says, one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is prophecy. And this gift is an identifying mark of the remnant church and was manifested in the ministry of Ellen G. White. As the Lord's messenger, her writings are a continuing and authoritative source of truth which provide for the church comfort, guidance, instruction and correction. And they also make clear that the Bible is the standard by which all teachings and experience must be tested. We do not put Ellen White's writings above the Bible. We do not say they're even equal with the Bible. We, are say, we say they are complementary to, or they're like a microscope in the Bible. When I first read Ellen White's book, you know what happened to me? It drove me into the Bible like nothing else I'd ever read. And it helped me understand what the Bible was really saying. They point us to the Bible and the Bible only and that great Protestant Reformation slogan, Sola Scriptura, the Bible and the Bible only. This is our rule of faith and practice. Just as the prophets of old were sent to continually remind of frequently backslidden people to remain faithful to the word of God. Now, how do we know that the prophetic gift in Ellen White's case was genuine and not a counterfeit? How do we know that? Well, the Bible provides several guidelines for testing the prophetic gift. It's important. And those of you who are watching this program around the world, you you might want to get out your pen and write this down. Well, you might want to get out your phone and take a picture of the screen so you have a recording of what we're going to be talking about because we're going to be going through a lot of information. The first one is dreams and visions. 
which is in Numbers 12, verse 6. And it says there, and he said, Hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a a dream. So in scripture, genuine prophets receive prophetic dreams and visions. And during her 70-year ministry from 1844 to 1915, Ellen G. White received approximately, you know how many visions and dreams? 2,000. Around about 2,000. Phenomenal. The second point is agreement with the Bible. We get that from Isaiah 8, verse 20, which says this, To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not, in, not according to this word, there is how much light in them? None. None. So what a prophet claims to have received from God must be in harmony with the rest of God's word. Because God, who said in Malachi 3, verse 6, that he never changes, does not contradict himself. Although Ellen White was not a trained theologian, her messages were in harmony with scriptures. Have you found that? Mm. Have you read her books and you've found that? That's what makes it so wonderful, isn't it? Mm. And the third one is the witness to Jesus. And we get this in 1 John 4, verses 1 and 2, which says this. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because, why? Many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God, it says in uh, 4 verse 2, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. That's a very important point. Because you may have heard some people speaking saying that Jesus Christ isn't really God. I've heard that from plenty of people. But we know from this that such a statement is not from God, isn't it? Anyone familiar with the writings of Ellen White, such as the books, The Desire of Ages, or The Steps to Christ, will be able to see for themselves that she not only accepted that all the Bible teaches about Jesus, but continually pointed people to him as their Lord and Saviour. Friends, there are people out there watching. Don't take my word for it. Check it out for yourself. And you get an opportunity as we go through this program to do just that. The fourth one is fulfilled prophecy. We get that from Jeremiah 28, verse 9, which says, The prophet which prophesieth of peace, when the word of the prophet shall come to pass, then shall the prophet be known that the Lord has truly sent him. The proof of a true prophet lies in part in the fulfilment of his or her predictions. Although Ellen White's work did not primarily consist of predicting the future, she did make a number of predictions that have all been fulfilled in a remarkable way. And the fifth one is the orchard test. The orchard test. We get this from Matthew 7, verse 20. And that says, Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. And the orchard test takes time. Ellen White lived and worked for 70 years under the critical eyes of millions of people. They were largely sceptical, doubtful and suspicious. And in some cases they were openly hostile. Any perceived fault or inconsistency was and still is 
he investigated and exposed with great satisfaction by her opponents. But nevertheless, the fruit of her life and labour attests to her sincerity, her zeal and her Christian piety. Would you agree with that? Yes. You have to read it to understand this. We don't expect people to expect it just because we say it. You know, you need to investigate for yourselves, as I did. It took me 18 months. You know, I was an atheist and I'd written a paper at university condemning Christianity as a mental crutch. And my psychology lecturer challenged me and told me to do more research. And as a commentary, he gave me one of Alan Watts' book called The Great Controversy. And then he gave me another one on patriarchs and prophets. And as I read those books, they drove me into the Bible. And by after 18 months, I had to say, well, if I'm not going to be a hypocrite like all those other Christians I've written about, I'd better become a Seventh-day Adventist. And the Lord blessed. While counterfeit prophets may pass one or two of these tests, a true prophet will pass them all. We believe that Ellen White certainly did. God's gracious guidance through the prophetic gift of Ellen White should make us more aware of the responsibility that we as a remnant church have, and it should spur us on to finish the work God's given us to do. What do you say? You know, I feel bad for Seventh-day Adventists who haven't read Ellen White's writing. I think they're missing half the message, don't you? They haven't really understood it. Now, how did Helen White herself describe her prophetic experiences? Very interesting. I want you to read what she has to say. She said, early in my youth, I was asked several times, are you a prophet? She said, I've ever responded, I am the Lord's messenger. I know that many have called me a prophet, but I've made no claim to this title My Saviour declared me to be his messenger. Your work, he instructed me, is to bear my word. Strange things will arise, and in your youth, I've set you apart to bear the message to the erring ones, to carry the word before unbelievers, and with pain and voice to reprove from the word actions that are not right. Exhort from the word. I will make my word open before you. It shall not be as a strange language. In the true eloquence of simplicity with voice and pen, the messages that I give shall be heard from one who has never learned in the schools. My spirit and my power shall be with you. That's an interesting statement because she never learned in the school because as a young girl, she was hit in the face with a rock which debilitated her and wrecked her education. And yet the Lord chose her because she hadn't learned in the schools. He was able to teach her in his school. So what a blessing that was. He says, Be not afraid of men, for my shield will protect you. It is not you that speaketh, it is the Lord that giveth the messages of warning and reproof. Now here, look at this. Never deviate from the truth under any circumstances. Doesn't that encourage you? Never deviate from the truth under any circumstances. Give the light that I shall give you. Sell books that give light. The Lord has sent his people much instruction, she said. Line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little. But she said, little heed is given to the Bible, and the Lord has given a lesser light. She calls her writings a lesser light. To lead men and women to the greater light. Now, how much good would be accomplished, she says, if the book containing this light 
were read with a determination to carry out the principles they contained. She says there would be a thousandfold greater vigilance, a thousandfold more self-denial and resolute effort, and many more would now be rejoicing in the light of present truth. So it's important that we share those books. You know, friends, every good university student learns not to just accept what he's being taught without proof. He learns how to do research, how to investigate evidence, and how important it is to keep an open mind and not make any conclusions until thorough investigations have been done. Isn't that supposed to be the basis for our court? It's a basis for all kinds of learning. You can't just make assumptions and make opinions unless you've done genuine research. Otherwise, you haven't done justice to the subject. And this process is just what God has recommended in Isaiah 1 verse 18, where he says, Come now, what's he say? Let us reason together, said the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. They be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. So he says, come on, let's study. I've got a promise for you. If you study, you will discover that though your sins be as scarlet, they can be as white as snow. That's a great promise, isn't it? That's an encouragement to study, isn't it? It sure is. God made us with wonderful brains so we can think and reason, so we can examine evidence and make conclusions. He doesn't expect us to accept anything without thinking and reasoning and listening. And friends, with this understanding, and before we continue, I would like to offer you, and the people out there who are watching this program, I would like to offer you a chance to examine some of Ellen White's writings for yourself and see if, they, if these books do indeed meet the biblical test of a true prophet. <coughs> Grab your pen or get out your phone and get ready to take a picture of the screen and write down this important information. Now here's the information you need. Inspired by the Reformation, the Great Controversy DVD production is a musical and historical journey through Europe. It is written's John Bradshaw joins Fountain View Academy to host this production filmed in five different countries of Europe at historically meaningful sites. These young musicians share not only music, but personal testimonies and powerful Reformation stories still relevant to our lives today. To order your own set of the Great Controversy DVD and book by Fountain View Academy Orchestra and Singers, visit their online web store at store.fountainview.ca. That's store.fountainview.ca. Or you may call them in North America on 1877 490 4141. In one of your books called The Great Controversy, Ellen White made an amazing prophetic statement. I'm going to quote from this book and read to you because this is profound information. She said, The great controversy between Christ and Satan that has been carried forward for nearly 6,000 years is soon to close. And the wicked one redoubles his efforts to defeat the work of Christ in man's behalf and to fasten souls in his snares. The whole people in darkness and in penitence until the Saviour's mediation is ended and there is no longer a sacrifice for sin 
is the object which he seeks to accomplish. And friends, the Bible tells us clearly that it is certain that Christ's mediation in the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary is going to end. Evil will not be allowed to continue unchecked forever. Isn't that good news? Listen to this statement in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verses 11 and 12. We're going to read it, this one. Revelation, chapter 22, verses 11 and 12. And it says, He that is unjust, unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. So doesn't these texts imply an end to the great controversy? It's pretty clear, isn't it? Why would Jesus come back if it's not going to be the end? Now we're going to continue reading from the great controversy. When there is no special effort made to resist his power, that's Satan's power, when indifference prevails, indifference prevails in the church and the world, Satan's not concerned. For he's in no danger of losing those whom he is leading captive at his will. But when the attention is called to eternal things and souls are inquiring, what must I do to be saved? He is on the ground seeking to match his power against the power of Christ and to counteract the influences of the Holy Spirit. Now, the information I'm about to share with you is nothing short of astounding news. You imagine being able to become invisible and secretly enter into a meeting between Satan and his angels and listen to his plans and instructions for the final battle. Don't you think that would make the headline news? If the world and particularly God's people could be forewarned, don't you think this news would enable them to prepare their defences with great urgency and great gratitude for God for making this information known? Wouldn't it be important if we knew the plans of an enemy to attack our country before those plans were made evident? Wouldn't we get ready with our defences? Wouldn't we do everything possible we could to stop it? Well, this is exactly what happened to Ellen White in one of, mo- in one of the most astounding visions that God ever gave her, and she faithfully wrote it all down afterwards. I reckon that would have been a scary experience, a humbling experience. The only satisfaction would be that she had the Lord beside her in this vision. But whatever experience it must have been. Just so anyone could want to could read this headline news. I want you to please stay tuned out there and here in the audience and listen very carefully as we read through this vital information about the enemy's battle plans. And I'm going to comment as we go to help ensure that the meaning of these statements is not lost. Now here is the first statement. As the people of God approach the perils of the last days, Satan holds earnest consultation with his angels as to the most successful plan of overthrowing their faith. He sees that the popular churches are already lulled to sleep by his deceptive power. 
already lulled to sleep by his deceptive power. What? Satan sees that the popular mainstream churches are already lulled to sleep? How could they possibly be in that state? Well, remember, in our previous episode, we revealed that the spirit of iniquity was the attitude and practice of compromise and conformity and would lead to believing and teaching unscriptural doctrines and believing lies. Remember the Bible said, if you believe a lie, I'll send you strong delusion. You believe one lie and you get led to another lie and another lie and another lie until you end up calling evil good and good evil. It's terrible. Satan knew that he has led these churches into this condition with false doctrines. Now, what are some of those false doctrines? We're going to go through a short list of them. The first false doctrine is the state of the dead. This is the immortality of the soul doctrine. The idea that when you die, you don't really die, but you take another life form called the soul. Well, what's wrong with that? Isn't that what most ministers say when you go to a funeral? Have you heard them say that? Oh, Mrs. Jones is happy now. She's in heaven. She's looking down. She's watching you. She's happy. Don't worry about it. I've heard that plenty of times. Well, there's two things wrong with it. Number one, the Bible says plainly in Ecclesiastes 9 verse 5 that the dead know nothing. And I quote it. For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything. Neither have they any more a reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. That's not the end of the story, of course. When Jesus comes, all that's going to change. But for now, the memory of them is forgotten. They know nothing. And number two, the second thing that's wrong with that idea, if the dead really only take another life form, then Satan must have told Eve the truth in the Garden of Eden when he said that thou shalt not surely die. Would you think he told the truth? No. Hardly. The Bible calls him the father of lies. And that was the first one. Another typical false doctrine is that Christ's atonement ministry was completely finished at the cross. And therefore, the Ten Commandments were done away with and not necessary anymore. Have you heard that one? hear that often. Well, what's wrong with this popular teaching? Well, Satan knew it was a great lie to teach because it completely ignores the book of Hebrews and the symbolic sanctuary picture of Christ's mediation in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. He knew that the cross was symbolized in the earthly sanctuary by the altar of sacrifice. The holy place and the most holy place. There are other elements. And both of these pointed to phases of Christ's ministry beyond the cross, didn't it? The picture didn't end at the cross. He well knew that with this lie he could keep people ignorant of the rest of the story after the cross. Diabolical. Another false doctrine that Satan has successfully taught is probably the very biggest of his list of fraud and lies. And this one is where Sunday is called the New Testament Sabbath. Astoundingly, and this totally devastated me when I first heard this, when I was investigating this issue of Sabbath versus Sunday, I was astounded by what other denominations had to say about it. When I read the writings of the leaders of these other denominations, 
it blew me away. I'm going to show you some of them. This first one is from the Catholic Church. So basically it says, Saturday is the Sabbath day. It's the last day of the week, the seventh day, the day on which God rested after six days of creation. Even modern calendars have Saturday as the last day of the week and Sunday is the first day of the new week. Well, that's pretty astounding, isn't it? <laughs> if you were a Catholic, you wouldn't you say, well, 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 wait a minute, what are we doing going to church on Sunday? And the second one is from the Anglican Church. Is there any command in the New Testament to change the day of weekly rest from Saturday to Sunday? What's their own answer? None. And this one from the Baptist. There was an either commandment to keep holy the Sabbath day. Hey, these are the people who brought in the separation of church and state. These were the great founders of religious liberty. But the Sabbath day was not Sunday, they said. And it will be said, however, and with some show of triumph, that the Sabbath was transferred from the seventh to the first day of the week. Well, where can the record of such a transaction be found? Not in the New Testament, absolutely not. There is no scriptural evidence of the change of the Sabbath institution from the seventh to the first day of the week. In that case, why are they keeping Sunday? Because they're following tradition. Isn't that so? Tradition. Not the Bible. I just pray that my friends in the Baptist Church and these other denominations that are doing this will just wake up. And we want unity, don't we? We want unity on the basis of truth, on God's day of rest. We don't want unity on the basis of throw the doctrine out and come together for the sake of unity. That's foolish. Another one is the doctrine of the rapture. And this is one I think that Satan regards as his most successful lie. Remember in our third episode, we showed how this doctrine was an invention of the Jesuits to be a key strategy of the Counter-Reformation if you get the focus off the papacy as the antichrist of the books of Daniel and Revelation and replace it with this chart of unbiblical theories about prophetic events and timelines, including the rapture theory. is where it all comes from. Satan knew that this deliberately engineered lie would be so successful it would eventually have a profound influence on American foreign policy. He knew that this doctrine would be a powerful tool to quieten the fears of sleeping millions who would begin to wake up at the loud cry of those who were not deceived and were trying to sound the alarm about the signs foretold in prophecy. And that's what we're trying to do, isn't it? We're trying to sound an alarm with this program to wake up they say there's no cause for alarm, Satan's agents would cry. Before Christ shall come, all the world is to be converted and righteousness is to reign for a thousand years. Where did it come from? Jesuit theory. Peace, peace, they say. All things continue as they were from the beginning. Let none be disturbed by the exciting messages of these alarmists. I would rather be an exciting alarmist, wouldn't you? and excited alarmists. Friends, if you had a bomb under your house and someone tried to say, hey, you've got a bomb under your house, get out quick! And you say, no. Don't worry about it. I don't believe it. Well, what's going to happen to you? The alarmist is not going to get killed. 
Satan's comments, as Ellen White recorded them, makes the identification marks of his false doctrines extremely clear. Listen to this. We're back to Ellen White's commentary in that meeting with Satan. She says, says the great deceiver, we must watch those who are calling the attention of the people to the Sabbath of Jehovah. Who's that? That's you and me. They will lead many people to see the claims of the law of God. And the same light which reveals the true Sabbath reveals also the ministration of Christ in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. Satan doesn't want people to know that's where Christ is. He doesn't want people to know that he's finishing his work. Hold the minds of the people in darkness till that work is ended. And we shall secure the world and the church also. He says the Sabbath is the great question which is to decide the destiny of souls. What decides the destiny of souls? The Sabbath. We must exalt the Sabbath of our creating, Sunday. We've caused it to be accepted by both worldlings and church members, and now the church must be led to unite with the world in its support. That's a church-state relationship too. We must work by signs and wonders to blind their eyes to the truth and lead them to lay aside reason in the fear of God and follow custom and tradition. I will influence popular ministers to turn the attention of their hearers from the commandments of God. That which the scriptures declare to be a perfect law of liberty shall be represented as a yoke of bondage or legalism. Then Ellen White's comments get even more specific. We continue reading about this amazing conference. She says, but our principal concern, this is, she's listening to Satan, writing down what Satan says. Satan says, but our principal concern is to silence this sect of Sabbath keepers. We must excite popular indignation against them. And look how he does it. We will enlist great men and worldly wise men upon our side and induce those in authority to carry out our purposes. And then the Sabbath which we have created or set up, Sunday, shall be enforced by laws the most severe and exacting. I'll continue quoting, but you won't see these words on the screen. Those who disregard them shall be driven out from the cities and villages and made to suffer hunger and privation. When once we have the power, we will show them what we can do with those who will not swerve from their allegiance to God. We led the Romish church to inflict imprisonment, torture and death upon those who refused to yield to her degrees. He's bragging. And now that we are bringing the Protestant churches in the world into harmony with this right arm of our strength, we will finally have a law to exterminate all who will not submit to our authority. When death shall be made the penalty of violating our Sabbath Sunday, then many who are now ranked with commandment keepers will come over to our side. But what he doesn't know is he's on on the losing side. Isn't he? Ellen White had something very meaningful to say about these statements. She commented herself. And she wrote this down. This is not good. This, you know, this is not a pretty picture, but we need to know about it. She said, Satan's policy in this final conflict with God's people is the same that he employed in the opening of the great controversy in heaven. He professed to be seeking to promote the stability of the divine government while secretly bending every effort to secure its overthrow. And the very work which he was thus endeavouring to accomplish, he charged upon the loyal angels. The same policy of deception has marked the history of the Roman Church. 
it has professed to act as the vice-regent of heaven, while seeking to exalt itself above God and to change his law. Under the rule of Rome, those who suffered death for their fidelity to the gospel were denounced as evildoers. They were declared to be in league with Satan, and every possible means was employed to cover them with reproach, to cause them to appear in the eyes of the people and even to themselves as the vilest of criminals. So it will be now. While Satan seeks to destroy those who honour God's law, he will cause them to be accused as lawbreakers, as men who are dishonouring God and bringing judgments upon the world. Unquote. And then Ellen White heard more alarming news for Sabbath keepers, as if that wasn't enough. Listen to what else she heard. But before proceeding to these extreme measures, we must exert all our wisdom and subtlety to deceive and snare those who wanted the true Sabbath. We can separate many from Christ by worldliness, lust and pride. They may think themselves safe because they believe the truth. But indulgence of appetite or the lower passions which will confuse judgment and destroy discrimination, what will indulgence of appetite and lower passions do? Confuse judgment and destroy discrimination. You see, that will cause their fall. Ellen White's vision has shown us that a knowledge of the truth isn't enough to prevent Satan's deceptions from turning us away from God. And believe it or not, we are told very clearly that one of his key strategies to call us to fall is indulgence of appetite and or lust and pride. Really? Is what we eat really all that important? Does the Bible support such statements? Well, let's take a look at the first temptation of Christ in Matthew, chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. We're going to read that. Matthew 4, verses 1 to 4. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit unto the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and he said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So what can we learn from these texts? Well, if the power of appetite is so strong upon the human family and its indulgence so fearful that the Son of God subjected himself to a fast of nearly six weeks, then how important is it that we feel the necessity of having appetite under the control of reason? What do you say? Appetite has to be controlled by reason. And thousands of people today are health destroyers, self-made invalids, because of their disregard of the laws of health. Isn't that so? What a pity. Any violation of the laws of nature is a violation of the law of God. I don't think many people realise that. Unfortunately, many people see the commandments as just a list of do's and don'ts, when the reality is that the Lord has given his commandments as a wall of protection. you believe that? A wall of protection around his created being. 
and those who will keep themselves from the defilement of appetite and passion may become partakers of the divine nature. Do you believe that? You can inherit, you can, you can accept the supernatural power of God to overcome these things and move forward in faith and practice. Their perceptions will be clear. They will know how to preserve every faculty in health and the Lord can use them because they understand the words of the great apostle Paul in Romans 1 verse 2. Romans 1 and verse 2. We're going to read that one. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Unfortunately, Ellen White saw that there was a lot more to the enemy's battle plan than corrupting people's minds with indulgence of appetite and passion. And you can discover more vital information in the chapter called The Snares of Satan in the great book, The Great Controversy. But now I want to encourage you by turning your attention to the secret weapons that God has made available to enable his people to build an impregnable fortress of spiritual safety during the time of final crisis. Do we need that? Yeah. We need an impregnable fort, don't we? Mm-hmm. Satan well knows that all whom he can lead to neglect prayer and the searching of scriptures will be overcome by his attacks. So he must go into the storehouse of God's weaponry, the Bible. The Apostle Paul tells us exactly what God's weapons are in Ephesians 6, 10 to 18. We're going to read through some of it and we're going to comment on it. In verse 10 in Ephesians 6, it says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of a devil. That was verse 11. Verse 12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armour of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. And verse 14, Stand therefore, having your loins got about with truth. We'll talk more about that in a minute. And having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That was verse 15. Verse 16, Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And verse 17, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Verse 18, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplications for all saints. Now let's review some of these weapons in the light of the spirit of prophecy. Regarding the breastplate of righteousness, we read these comments from the great controversy. As you strive for victory, he will help you by his Holy Spirit to be circumspect in every action, that you may give no occasion for the enemy to speak evil of the truth. Put on as your breastplate that divinely protected righteousness 
which it is the privilege of all to wear, this will protect his spiritual life. Regarding the weapon of prayer, we read these encouraging comments. Prayer is the weapon by which we resist the enemy. Pray much. Prayer is the life of the soul. You believe that? Yes. Prayer is the life of the soul. The prayer of faith is a weapon by which we may successfully resist every assault of the enemy. The earnest prayer of faith will baffle his strongest efforts of Satan. Then take the shield of faith, brethren, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And we are told in Ephesians 6.14 to stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth. This is critical protection against the deceptions of the enemy. He who utters untruth sells his soul in a cheap market. Do you believe that? His falsehoods may seem to serve a purpose in emergencies. But he finally reaches the place where he can trust nobody. Do you believe that? You keep telling lies all the time and eventually you find yourself trapped in a corner of lies. Himself a falsifier, he has no confidence in the word of others. You don't believe anybody else either. And regarding watchfulness, there are in the world today many who close their eyes to the evidences that Christ has given to warn men of his coming. There's a lot of people like that, isn't there? They don't want to know. You talk about Christ's second coming, they don't want to know. They seek to quiet all apprehension, while at the same time, the signs of the end are rapidly fulfilling. And Paul teaches that it is sinful to be indifferent to the signs which are to precede his second coming of Christ. Those guilty of this neglect he calls children of the night and of darkness. He encourages the vigilant and watchful with these words. But he says, ye brethren are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all children of the light and children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep, meaning spiritually, as do others, but let us watch and be sober. What do you say? Amen. Anything we take into our bodies that dulls our senses and our perceptions makes us drunk, doesn't it? it makes us blind. We are the children of a day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. If we accept Christ as our guide, he will lead us safely along the narrow way. The road may be rough and thorny, and the accents steep and dangerous. There may be pitfalls on the right hand and on the left. When weary and longing for rest, we may have to toil on. When faint, we may have to fight. But with Christ as our guide, we shall not fail of, re of reaching heaven. What do you say? Yeah. We shall not fail if Christ is on our side. He will supply the needs of all who will come to him in faith. And there will always be a few who will preserve the knowledge of God and will remain faithful even when surrounded by people who ignore God. Is that going to be you? Will you remain faithful even if you're surrounded with people who just ignore God? These are his peculiar people, strange people according to the world's view but they're zealous of good works, not in order to get saved, but because they so much appreciate what God has done for them, they want to demonstrate that in hopefulness and good works. Isn't that so? This is what we believe.
So the question is asked, will you stand fast with Christ? As we listen to this inspiring story by, Dr. J- by John Bradshaw, Pastor John Bradshaw, and music by the Fountain View Choir at Orchestra. One of Martin Luther's contemporaries was a man named Ulrich Zwingli, a Swiss reformer. He started humbly in this world, but he used the gifts and the talents God had given to him for God's glory. Above the reformer's wall in Geneva, Switzerland, is an inscription that reads, Post Tenebras Lux, After Darkness, Light. And after the darkness of the Middle Ages, God used Zwingli and others to bring light to the world.
that's what I call zealous music. What do you say? Beautiful. Let us pray. Loving Father in heaven, we praise thee and thank thee so much for giving so much light to your people and all those who desire to hear the truth that you want to call out of darkness into light. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will go forward with this program and compel and invite those in the highways and the byways to come and join us, Lord, as we prepare for your coming. For you are the winning side. You have shown us beforehand what is to come to pass and you have prepared a place for your people that such as mine can hardly comprehend it. Eternity in heaven with thee in an unfallen world. We don't want to miss it, Lord. Please bless us. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see and incline our hearts to do your will as we move forward in faith and practice and prepare for your coming because we ask in Jesus' precious name. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Listening to Focus on God's Word with Graham Weir, a production of 3ABN Australia Television. If you have any comments or questions, send an email to radio at 3ABN Australia.org.au.